would you join me in the word of prayer? Our Father, we come now to really the highlight of Christian worship. This is the closest we ever come to seeing our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, in person, and that is to read His words. We sing the words inspired by the text of Scripture. We now read the words of Scripture and consider them and apply them to our hearts. And we ask you, Lord, to make this a a time of joy as we learn of Christ, as we learn of our salvation, which is so great, as we learn of all the heavenly blessings which are ours in Christ Jesus. I pray this morning, Lord, that we would be attentive to you, that you would drive these truths so deeply into our very souls that we live them and we breathe them. And so today, Lord, let the word of God speak forth, we pray, so that the head of the church, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, might be honored and glorified. And it is in his name we pray, amen. In a few minutes, we're going to take a little tour through parts of the New Testament. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We'll look at some other passages as well. This will definitely be a page-turning morning. So be ready for that. The great Charles Spurgeon proclaimed, If a man does not live differently from what he did before, his repentance needs to be repented of. And his conversion is a fiction. In other words, genuine faith in Jesus Christ involves and includes turning away from that which you you had worshipped, including your own sinful desires, your own priorities, your own wants, and turning instead to him who is worthy of your worship. That's what true faith is. And this true faith will cost you. We're reminded of the Lord Jesus saying in Luke 14, exhorting the one who is considering faith in Christ, he exhorts to count the cost. Luke 14, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so there is a counting of the cost. The last time we began introducing John 15 and 16, and we will for the next coming weeks examine what we're calling costly Christianity I did the first part of introducing this series last time, and we noted that there is a movement afoot which names itself the Free Grace Movement. It's been called by some of its own proponents the idea of easy believism, and while that sounds like an insult, they made it up. It is an insult, and so we'll grab onto it since they made it up. But the easy believism movement is made up, I, I believe, of genuine Christians. These are people who, like us, desire to see everybody possible in heaven someday. But to accomplish that task, we believe that they've compromised the integrity of the true gospel message. It's a disaster what they have put out there. It is a ship that is sinking because it gives false assurance of salvation potentially to unbelievers. And we can't have that. We saw that debunking this idea relates directly to John 15 and 16, in that Jesus is going to open this section of his farewell speech to his disciples by exhorting them 11 times, abide in me. And we saw that what it means to abide in Christ means to remain with him. And while it is the power of God that keeps our salvation status, the believer is called to persevere. We are called to remain steadfast. And that true faith is demonstrated by bearing spiritual fruit a changed life. 
In contrast to the easy believism movement, we established some affirmation of biblical salvation, sometimes called lordship salvation. We would just call it salvation. But these affirmations are that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, not by works. We saw also that part of the gift of faith includes the gift of repentance. It is granted by God to repent. We saw also that salvation is God's work alone and it lasts forever. There's no such thing as being saved and then becoming unsaved. We also saw that genuine faith will produce a changed life. Something is different. You're not the same. We also affirmed that salvation is a singular package. It is a package deal. You are saved and you are brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We do not divide Jesus into Savior and into Lord. He is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We affirmed also that genuine faith requires total surrender to Christ as Lord. You don't give him some of your life, part of your life, most of your life. You give him all of your life. And we affirmed that an unwillingness to obey Christ indicates false faith. You cannot be a Christian who is unwilling to obey. That does not exist. And we established from their own literature and their proclamations the basic positions of easy believism, that faith is defined as being merely intellectual uh, belief, intellectual consent that Jesus guarantees eternal life to all who believe him for it. It doesn't include sorrow for sin. It doesn't include repentance. It doesn't include submission to the Lordship of Christ. In other words, I can say, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I am saved. There's no turning away from sin. There's no sense of difference. There's no sense of submission. And thus, obedience to Christ will not be manifested in every Christian's life. So there are the carnal Christians and there are the non-carnal Christians. And they would divide Christians into those two camps. And then we look closely at the errors of easy believism. You can review those by listening to last week's message. And finally, we saw the dangers of easy believism that primarily... It makes no call to count the cost of following Christ. It doesn't tell us that to follow Christ is costly and has blurred the lines now between the believer and the unbeliever. You can't tell the difference. And so to summarize easy believism, this movement says that becoming a Christian doesn't cost anything. Doesn't cost you anything. Now, last time we made some hopefully respectful evaluations concerning this dangerous movement, and it was basically pretty negative. It was all the things that is wrong with that movement, and we understand that we have to do that at times. It's not our favorite thing to do, but it's, it's terrible because it gives unbelievers a false sense of security based on the fact that one time when I was seven years old, I said, I believe in Jesus, and we're giving them security. No man can give another human being security of salvation. That is not possible because no man knows another's hearts, another's heart. But today I want to take a different approach. I want to take the positive approach. One of the errors of the easy believism, folks, with their questionable Bible study methods, is that they're very choosy, very choosy about which scriptures in the New Testament they use to support their position. So we need to examine the question, does the New Testament as a whole support a faith that costs, a costly Christianity, that following after Christ comes at a price, not to earn salvation, but because of salvation? 
Does the New Testament as a whole support a faith that includes repentance and a life that involves being made more like Christ, suffering for your faith, hurting for your faith, standing for your faith, living a lifestyle that demonstrates your faith? Does the New Testament say that? Now, time doesn't obviously permit me to be comprehensive, so what we're going to do this morning is be representative. So my basic goal this morning is to put easy believism on trial. Easy believism now goes on trial, and they must answer to eight witnesses. And these eight witnesses will testify, and guess who gets to be the judge? You do. So you're the judge this morning. Court is in session. You are in the judge's seat to listen to the witnesses, and the prosecution goes right for the jugular and calls the star witness immediately. The first witness easy believism must answer to is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus taught that faith in Christ is costly. Look with me at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want to camp out on the word repent for a moment. We're familiar with it. We use it a lot, but I want to make certain we understand it. This is a Greek word which means most literally to know something afterward, to know after. It means that a certain knowledge has been acquired that now, now causes a shift in how you think. Thus, it means to change your mind. It means to change your way of life as a result of changing your mind. You cannot change your mind about your sin without changing your attitude toward your sin, without changing how much you sin. If you suddenly hate something, then you will back off from it more and more. It can also mean, literally, conversion. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament major word for repent literally just means to turn. It's to convert. It's to change. It's a change of direction. One writer says it, quote, expresses every kind of regret, sorrow, and disgust. The easy believism movement says that faith and repentance are identical. It's the same thing. There's no difference in the two. But in extra-biblical ancient literature, this same word for repent is used of feeling remorse, changing behavior, and being converted, being changed in some way. It's used by many secular writers with the first known use about 500 years before Christ. Those who use the word in exactly this way include Plato, Josephus, Philo, Marcus Aurelius, Lucian, the Hermetic writings. That's just a sample list. I made the list. It took two pages of notes. I didn't think you wanted to hear all that. So the biblical use of the word repent, meaning to change your mind about sin, change your mind about wickedness, which results in a change of direction, a change of life, a change of action, that is completely consistent with how everyone else uses that word. And so the free grace belief that faith and repentance are the same thing, they're utterly alone in that. No one else believes that. Turn with me to Matthew 8, verse 18. The words of the Lord Jesus again. Matthew 8, verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Notice what the scribe said. I will follow you. What is that? That is intellectual belief that Jesus Christ is worthy of following. He believes in Jesus. And he makes a verbal commitment. That's what easy believism would say is salvation. But how does Jesus answer him? Verse 20, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. 
but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus essentially is saying, I don't own anything and I often sleep outside. You willing to do that? You want to come with me? The absence of an answer here screams volumes to us, doesn't it? The implied answer is no, he wasn't willing. Very next verse, verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, this man's father wasn't dead. This is a colloquialism, a a cultural expression for let me wait until my father dies. I inherit the family business and put some money in the bank. Then I will follow Christ. And what did Jesus say? Verse 22, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, let the spiritually dead worry about dead things, about worldly things. You follow me. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. Matthew 10, 38. Prior to his crucifixion, Jesus is going to use the imagery of the cross. His listeners would know the cross as one thing and one thing only, a means of execution. You say, I don't like my job, but that's the cross I must bear. That's not what they were thinking. There's only one thing that they would associate with the cross. The condemned was about to take his cross and carry it to his own death. That's what taking up your cross means, exactly what Jesus would do. So he says in Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Taking up the cross to the original hearers meant a one-way trip to your own death. The person taking up the cross is dead. They're just alive long enough to carry their own cross. They're dead to their way of life. They're dead to everything that's dear to them. To take up your cross is to say, I accept a death sentence to self. And so Jesus says that if you find your life, meaning that you want to keep all that you think will make you happy in this world, all that the world will temporarily offer, then you lose your life and you will die in your sin. But if you find life, then you must lose yours. By the way, Jesus also says this in Mark chapter 8 and Luke chapter 5. This is extremely important. The Holy Spirit triples up the repetition of this saying. And so you must repent. Now, what does this repentance look like? The the willingness to give up all that you've held dear. What's the quality of repentance? What's the flavor of repentance, so to speak? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11, probably on the same page in your Bible. Verses 20 and 21. Repentance is not an intellectual belief that Jesus is the Son of God and offers forgiveness of sins. There's much more to it than that. Repentance has a quality to it that's passionate, it's poignant, it's, it's pitiful in a way. Matthew 11, verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes was a public sign of utter sorrow and grief. And in this case, over sin. And it indicated the promise of a complete change of direction of of life. This isn't saying, yes, praise God, I believe that Jesus is my Savior. This is being devastated with your own sin. That's the quality of repentance. 
Look with me at Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, verse 21, very familiar to us. Jesus encounters a rich young ruler who is claimed to have followed the law of God. He believes himself righteous. And listen to this. He's young. He's a synagogue ruler. He's rich. He works to obey the law, meaning that all the other Jews would have seen him as ultimately blessed by God. His wealth would have been seen as proof that God has blessed him. And so what does Jesus say he must do to gain eternal life? Matthew 19, verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And Come and follow me. Why did Jesus tell him to sell everything? Because he accurately identified the idol in his life. And he said, Get rid of your idol. You must follow after me. The rich man counted the cost, and he said, It's too much. And he went away. By the way, Luke 18 also records this exchange. If Jesus was a free grace proponent, if he was an easy believism proponent, he would have made no demands. He would have said, do you believe that I'm your savior? Yes, I do. Then you're in. But he didn't. He said, get rid of it. Get rid of the disgusting idol in your life. Turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Next gospel over. Mark chapter 4. Jesus will demonstrate with his famous parable of the soils that the seed of the gospel falls upon different types of hearts. Mark chapter 4, verse 5, in this very familiar parable. Mark 4, verse 5, Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. What does it mean that it immediately sprang up? It looked a lot like a Christian. Jesus explains the rocky soil, the rocky heart. Verse 16 of the same chapter. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. What must the true Christian endure for his faith? Tribulation and persecution on account of the word. Mark chapter 6, turn with me there. Jesus sends out the 12 disciples in pairs to preach the message of the gospel. He doesn't give them a complicated message. Here's what they preached. Mark 6, verse 12. Easiest sermon prep ever. So they went out and proclaimed the people should repent. What was the message? Repent. There, there's no secret Greek here. It's just Stop sinning and turn to Christ. Turn with me now to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 31. When he was questioned as to why he ate with sinful tax collectors, Jesus had an answer. Why he eats with sinners and those who aren't even trying to keep the law of God. Luke 5, beginning in verse 31, Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? To repentance. That's the message. Turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, near the very end of the chapter. Verse 61. Luke 9, 61, Jesus has just said, as we saw earlier, leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
Luke 9, 61, right at the end of the chapter, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Again, this is a euphemism for let me try to make this as easy on my family as possible. Let me try to explain to them that I want to follow after Christ and let me make sure I have their stamp of approval before I come after you. And how did Jesus answer? Verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You either look forward or you go back. There's no in between. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Jesus Christ still on the witness stand here against the easy believism movement. Luke chapter 19, Jesus comes upon the tax collector Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus has been convicted in his own heart of his own sin And how did he express his faith in Christ? Luke 19, verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood. This is official. He stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. What did Zacchaeus call Jesus first? Lord, he submitted. Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 12. Gospel of John, chapter 12. Again, Jesus will make certain that we understand the cost of following after him. John 12, near the end, verse 25. John 12, 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And listen to this. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Where is Jesus that we must be? Prior verses, he said he's going to die. We must die as he has. We must die with him. Turn to John chapter 15. The text will be in next week. John 15, near the end, verse 20. Jesus has just said that unsaved people, generally speaking, hate the truly saved. The lives of the truly saved will demonstrate who they are and will engender vitriol and and venom. And so Jesus reminds them in John 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Christ will be persecuted. And so if you're a follower of Christ, to live in a way which avoids suffering for your faith is to demonstrate that you're not a servant of Christ. These are just representative. These are just little mountain peaks of what the Lord Jesus Christ would say. He taught that following him is costly. Well, now in our courtroom scene, we could imagine Jesus getting off the witness stand And now, looking very scholarly and smart, a man of detail, well-educated man, the only Gentile witness, a physician, Dr. Luke. He comes to the stand. Luke is the second witness the easy believism camp must answer to because Luke taught that faith in Christ is costly. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Luke, Paul's ministry companion and helper, is the undisputed author of the book of Acts, recording with perfect accuracy the events of the early church. 
And Luke records the Apostle Peter, now having been filled with the Holy Spirit, is preaching this famous gospel message. And what is his conclusion on this day of Pentecost? Acts 2, verse 37, near the end of the chapter. Now when they heard this, that is the gospel message, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is believe. Is that what he says? No, he said, Repent! And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, across the page. Peter's preaching again. What's his basic message? 319, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Turn to Acts chapter 8. Peter is, is addressing Simon the magician. And Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was being given to Samaritans, the normally despised people who were part Jew, part Gentile, and he offered the apostles money for the power to dispense the Holy Spirit. Sounds like Benny Hinn today. Acts 8.22 Peter says to Simon, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible... The intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Turn to Acts 11, verse 18. The Holy Spirit has been given to the Gentiles. And this is a stunning development as far as the Jewish apostles are concerned. This is a surprise to them. But they had to acknowledge this when Peter relayed to them that he had witnessed this among the Gentiles. Acts 11, verse 18. And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Repentance is God's gift. Turn to Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Acts 14, verse 22. Now, we're, we, we've clearly established that the message of the gospel recorded by Luke involves repentance. But this means that by totally aligning yourself with Christ, you're taking a stand, not, not a cultural Christianity stand. Not one that doesn't cost you, but a stand that is, that is costly. In Iconium and Antioch, Paul and his missionary team are preaching to the churches. And how are they encouraging the churches? Acts 14, verse 22. They were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter The kingdom of God. The idea of entering the kingdom here is speaking of the consummation of salvation, the the final end of all things, the establishment of Christ's kingdom on earth. But what's the pathway? It is tribulation. It is suffering. Tribulation is a Greek word that means affliction, distress. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul is explaining to the elders of the Ephesian church precisely the gospel message he's been proclaiming. He says, here's what I've been proclaiming. Acts 20, verse 21. Acts 20, 21. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice the interaction of faith and repentance? He didn't mix them up. They're a package deal. Repentance and faith are not treated by Paul as identical as the free grace proponents would say. Yes, we are saved by faith and faith alone. But faith devoid of repentance is not faith. It's not true faith. Well, 
Luke is a man of detail. He's made his case. He's excused from the witness stand. And now coming up is a man that would inspire some quietness in the courtroom. He's scarred. He's beaten, perhaps even limping a little bit. He has wounds that he's received in his body for the gospel of Christ. He's a man who was once confronted and, in fact, blinded by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Apostle Paul. The third witness the easy believism camp must answer to because Paul taught that faith in Christ is costly. And boy, he has a lot to say. Turn to Romans 2. Paul is bursting at the seams to speak to us this morning. Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is establishing the particulars of the gospel. And look what he says about those whose lives do not change. Romans 2 verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What is being stored up for the unbeliever? It is wrath. This isn't some sort of carnal Christian who's going to go to heaven. This is a carnal unbeliever who's acting like a Christian or thinks he's a Christian and he's going to hell. It never is said that somebody has the wrath of God stored up for them and then they go to heaven. The Bible never says that. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, Paul will will speak to us here about the cost of our faith. Is he going to divide Christians into two classes as the easy believism folks do? Those who incur cost for their faith and those who do not? Is he going to do that? Romans 8, 17. Let's start in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You know what the easy believism folks say? We said this last week. They say, well, there are some Christians who are heirs and others who are not heirs. How do you get there? What they don't do is they don't take into account the end of that verse which says that heirs with Christ are glorified with him. We would never say that there is such thing as a Christian who will never be glorified with Christ. That makes no sense. Paul has more to say. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul addresses how we're to interact with unbelievers, those who do not claim Christ. He describes them. He says they're sexually immoral, they're greedy, they're swindlers, they're idolaters. And we are to interact with them. We are to proclaim Christ to them. They're lost, so of course they act that way. They're acting according to their nature. But what about the professing Christian who continues in unrepentant major sin? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11 But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. In other words, Paul says, get that guy out of the church. Why? 
because he's claimed Christ and his life hasn't changed. Therefore, he's a fraud. Get him out. Next chapter, 1 Corinthians 6. Now Paul gets even more direct, if that's possible, about what happens to those who continue in unrepentant agreement with their sin. This isn't some sort of perverted grace that says it doesn't matter if you continue unrestrained in your sin. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And in fact, he makes a difference. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the next letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at Paul's definition of what happens to Christians for the sake of Christ. What does a Christian look like? 2 Corinthians 1 verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort also, whether we share suffering. Verse 7, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. What do Christians do? Christians suffer. It's what we do. Same book, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5. Paul is delineating that the person has two choices. Two choices. Live for self as an unbeliever or live for Christ as a believer. Those are our choices. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Who's the all for whom Christ died? For their sake, those who no longer live for themselves. And listen, this isn't someone that just says, okay, now I'm living for Christ. My life is about Jesus. It's not good enough. There has to be the evidence of new thoughts, new words, new deeds, new everything. You cannot just say, Jesus is my Savior. You must live a life that proves that. And how do we know this? Look two verses later. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. Something new has happened. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What has gone? The old. You can't say, I'm a Christian, but I decided to keep all my old stuff. That doesn't work. Very next chapter, 2 Corinthians 6. Paul defines the paradox of the Christian life, that the true believer is rich in the Lord and yet suffers in this life. 2 Corinthians 8, or 2 Corinthians 6, rather, verse 8, second half of the verse. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. To follow Christ means being treated as one who has nothing, and yet the spiritual reality is that the Christian has everything that God has promised in salvation. This is very different than the easy believe is a message. Paul's just getting warmed up. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. Paul expresses the absolute cost of following Christ in one of his seminal statements concerning true salvation. 
Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The easy believism folks say that you can leave a, lead a, a completely carnal and selfish life and still be in Christ. Paul says that living the Christian life is literally Christ living through you. Galatians chapter 5. Turn with me there to verse 24. Paul has just given the outcome of possessing the Spirit of God and salvation, the fruit of the Spirit. And then he summarizes what a Christian looks like. Galatians 5, 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, that's a Christian, have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. The easy believism, folks, as we saw last week, falsely accuse us of believing that you must crucify the flesh and then come to Christ. That's, that's an error. We don't believe that, and they don't quote anybody who says we believe that. They just made it up. The flesh is crucified because we belong to Christ. Now, this isn't sinless perfection. You still struggle with your sin, right? But your sin nature has been dealt a mortal wound, and it's dying. And because it's dying... You should be winning the battle against sin more and more. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Here we have our great profession of faith, a biblical salvation, that we are saved by grace through faith, not by any work that we could perform for God. In verses 8 and 9. But what's the result of salvation? What's the result of faith? What happens because you're a Christian? Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Wait a minute. If there are Christians that don't do good works, what happens to the works that God prepared beforehand? Does he just recycle those? No. It means they weren't a believer. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, just across the page. Paul hearkens back to the calling of God, that God calls the elect to salvation in Christ. But does he say, but if you continue to live your life exactly as you did before, then that's okay. No. Ephesians 4, verse 1, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We've been called to the glorious grace of God in Christ. And Paul says, Walk and live in a manner that's worthy of that grace. Philippians 1, turn over with me there. Paul is consistent in his message. Philippians 1, verse 6, we find out who it is who keeps our salvation secure. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But what's our responsibility? What do we do? Same chapter, verse 27. Philippians 1, 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I, am, I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. Listen to this, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That doesn't sound easy. That sounds hard. Faith in Christ is granted as a package deal with a life characterized by cost, by loss, by sacrifice. 
In fact, two verses later, verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also what? Suffer for his sake. Same book, chapter 3. Paul is speaking of the righteousness of God that depends on faith, chapter 3, verse 9. And now in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is what a Christian attains to. This is what we look forward to. Paul isn't saying that that he's hopeful that he will earn his salvation. What he's saying is that I will go through anything as one who will be resurrected. I'll go through anything. This isn't sinless perfection. He says it himself in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. The response of being in Christ is to press on toward the end because Christ has claimed him as his own. By the way, the easy believism folks, they deny the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. If, they, if we don't have a responsibility to persevere, why does Paul say that he presses on? Why does he say in verse 13 he strains forward to what lies ahead? Why does he say in verse 14 he presses on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? That is perseverance through cost. There's a price. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. One page over. Colossians chapter 1, near the end of the chapter, Verse 24, this is a shocking verse. How fully is the Christian identified with Christ? Here's the shock. Verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, this doesn't mean that somehow Paul is joining in with the atonement work of Christ. In fact, this word for affliction is never used in any of Paul's writings to speak of the atonement of Christ. So so Paul's not saying that in his suffering he's somehow completing the atonement, that he's somehow helping pay the price for sin. What he is saying is that as a part of the body of Christ, as one who is in union with Christ, he is one of those who is helping finish the affliction of Christ, finish what Christ suffers. What does this mean? This is very simple. What he's saying is that in his efforts to make Christ known, there are consequences. Those consequences are painful. That in the sense that Jesus ultimately suffered for the message of salvation that he preached, a message of repentance, the Apostle Paul is suffering for that same message also. Now, let me put it to you this way. Two Christians go out and they're going to share the gospel. They're going to say, knock on doors. Christian number one says this. You need to believe in Jesus, that he died to save you from your sins, and that's it. You don't need to turn away from your sin because that would be a work and you can't earn salvation by works. Just believe. Christian number two says, move over. You need to repent. You need to turn away from your drugs. You need to get rid of your girlfriend and go back to your wife. You need to stop being prideful. You need to stop acting like a thug. You need to clean up your mouth. You need to stop getting drunk. You need to stop partying. You need to cherish and love your wife. And you need to get to church. Let me ask you a question. 
Who's going to get beaten up for his message? Christian number one or number two? Christian number two. As a matter of fact, Jesus was murdered because he preached the message of repentance. And Paul suffered in Christ because he preached the same message. In fact, the fact that Jesus was murdered for the message and the fact that Paul ultimately would be murdered for the message proves that the message is offensive to those who will not turn away from their sin. Easy believism folks don't get martyred that often because they don't require anything. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The first eight verses of 1 Thessalonians 4, if we were to take time on them, they, they show us what a Christian does. Verse 3, abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 4, control your body. Verse 5, watch out for the passion of lust. Verse 6, don't wrong your brother. Verse 7, be called to holiness, not impurity. Verse 8, if you disregard the word of God, you're disregarding God. And suddenly you see that the Christian is now different by nature. They're new. Verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. What does that mean? They love as God has taught them through the indwelling spirit of God who is love. You don't have to sit down and try to convince a true believer to love other Christians. It's just there. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. How does Paul boast and brag about this wonderful church? Well, they're persevering. Their faith is shown to be real by the cost that they endure for Christ's sake. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. And what does this prove about the Christian Verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Turn to 1 Timothy 3, next book over. 1 Timothy 3, can someone call Christ Savior and not call him Lord and Master? Can, can Christ be my Savior and yet have no claim over the way I act? 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Sounds like something you say to your kids, right? But we're all children of God and we are sheep of his pasture. In the very next chapter, Paul gives a brief characterization of the Christian life. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. He says that you train yourself for godliness. And this is the desire, this is the yearning of the true Christian. And it gives you, by the way, assurance of your salvation. Verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In other words, as you're pursuing Christ's likeness and you see sin being eradicated more and more in your life, it gives you assurance that you are in Christ. What does it mean to train yourself for godliness? Verse 10, for this end we toil and strive. There is cost to following Christ. Turn to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, and right about now, the attorney for the easy believism camp is fed up. And so he interrupts the whole thing. And he comes up to Paul and he 
says to Paul, Look, Paul, may I call you Paul? All a person has to do is intellectually believe that Jesus Christ died for his sins. He doesn't have to behave in a godly fashion. That would be salvation by works. His life doesn't need to reflect some sort of change. He doesn't need to pursue godliness. What would Paul answer? 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. He would answer him, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. What does it mean, accords with godliness? It means there's an association between the gospel and the changed life. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. What happens to the Christian? Jesus has already said that the one who loves him will obey him. There's a yearning, there's a longing, there's a desire to submit to Christ. And what happens as a result? What happens to the Christian? 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted because you're different. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Verse 11, Paul is going to say that all who are called by God, to all of them, salvation will most definitely come. And then he tells us what the grace of God trains us to do. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, meaning all that he is called, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. When? In the present age. Next chapter, Titus 3, verse 5, the free grace folks often quote Titus 3.5 as proof that forgiveness of sin is not by works. We showed last week, we don't believe that either. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And they would say, see, there doesn't have to be a difference in your life. You don't have to show that somehow you're a Christian now. All they have to do is look backwards four verses to see the context. Salvation in Christ has an effect, an outcome. Titus 3, verse 1, these are Christians Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, then we get to Titus 3, 5. There's a difference. There's a, there's a complete black and white change. Next page, the little letter to Philemon. Paul is appealing to Philemon to forgive his runaway slave Onesimus, and because Philemon is a Christian, there's a clear expectation. Philemon, verse 8, Paul tells him, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. He commands him. But because Philemon is a Christian, Paul has no doubt as to what he'll do. Verse 21, near the end of the little letter. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But Paul doesn't say, well, hopefully you're the type of Christian who wants to obey Christ and not the type who doesn't want to obey. He doesn't say that. Salvation in Christ has an effect. Paul had a lot to say 
He takes a deep breath, steps down off the witness stand. And now the fourth witness comes up. Very interesting. He's anonymous. No one knows his name. We only know him by the inspired letter now included in our New Testament. The fourth witness, the easy believism camp, must answer to the writer of Hebrews, taught that faith in Christ is costly. Turn near to the end, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, after 11 chapters of doctrine, the the author defines a Christian. A Christian, in verse 1, is one who has laid aside the sin which which clings so closely, one who runs the race of endurance, one who looks to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of faith. And then Jesus is now exalted as the one who has endured the cross because of the joy that would come as a result. And he, Christ himself, is now set up as our example. We are to consider him when we're under hostility. Verse 3. And then the writer of Hebrews assumes that the Christian is in a struggle against sin. And here's what he says in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, what does he assume about Christians? That you're struggling against your sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is the Christian who's fighting his sin. It's not one who's carnal, as worldly, as living as he always did. And the writer goes on to say that Christians suffer under the disciplining hand of God. And in fact, this suffering proves something to you. Chapter 12, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Whenever I've said this before, but whenever somebody says, oh, well, it looks like the Lord is disciplining you. I always say, thank you for confirming my salvation because he disciplines those whom he loves. Well, this anonymous witness leaves the witness stand. And now comes James. James is the physical half-brother of the Lord Jesus, the lead pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And he is the fifth witness to say the that the easy believism camp must answer to because James taught that faith in Christ is costly. Look at James chapter 1 right near the end, verse 22. The easy believism camp would say, all you have to do is hear the word of God, believe it, and you're saved. Really? Chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus makes the point that the Christian life is characterized by changed behavior, by cost. And I think he says this more bluntly than any other New Testament writer. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The implied answer is no, it can't. It can't. And just to make sure we understand, James is crystal clear in verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead. James chapter 4. Turn to James 4, verse 4. Can you be a Christian and yet be in love with the world and be immersed in the sin of the world? James says no. James 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, you cheaters, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Well, James leaves the witness stand. The next witness is easily recognizable. He's strong. He's confident. Definitely speaks his mind. The lead apostle, the one who would give his life for the gospel after decades of faithful ministry, the apostle Peter The sixth witness the easy believism camp must answer to because Peter taught that faith in Christ is costly. 
First Peter chapter 2. Near the end of the chapter and into chapter 3, Peter is explaining that Christians follow Christ even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. Chapter 2, verse 13, submit to human government. Chapter 2, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters. Chapter 3, verse 1, wives, submit to your husbands, even if they're unbelievers. Husbands, love your wives as having just as much right to a great marriage as you have. These things that are not always easy. And this is summarized in 1 Peter 2, verse 21. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Christians, following in the steps of Christ, how? By suffering. Same book, chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, verse 2. Peter will say in verse 1 that since Christ suffered, we're to think the same way, since suffering takes away the urge to sin. And here's the result, chapter 4, verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then, by the way, Peter lists all kinds of sinful lifestyles, which he says for the Christian, that time is past, verse 3. And in fact, in verse 4, He says that the unbeliever is surprised when the believer doesn't join them in sin and then they get angry and they malign you. Is your life a surprise to the unbelievers that you know? If it's not, then you should re-examine. In the same chapter, what characterizes a Christian's life? Chapter 4, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. This is a Christian. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Turn to 2 Peter 1, next page. Is the one who believed one time on the Lord Jesus to simply rest on that profession of faith as evidence of genuine salvation? Not according to Peter. Beginning in verse 5 of 2 Peter 1, he lists qualities for which we're to strive. He says, strive for virtue, which leads to knowledge, which leads to self-control, which leads to steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. And as you observe these qualities growing in your life, it provides confirmation and assurance of salvation. Verse 10 Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If all you are going to do is look back on a one-time profession of faith and cling to that alone, you're rolling the dice for your eternal destiny. But if you can look at your life and see how the Lord has moved and how he's changed you and how he's made you more like Christ, he's made you more tenderhearted, more kind, more loving, more submissive, more obedient, and you see this over time, that provides the confirmation of your calling. 2 Peter 2, verse 1. Peter warns that false teachers will arise. They'll bring destructive heresies, specifically concerning the person of Christ. And so Peter chooses an interesting word to refer to Jesus. 
Second Peter 2, 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Master, we get our word despot. Despot, this is, a, this is an overlord. And this has a, a, a legal connotation of somebody who owns all the rights to you. It's not just somebody who rules you, it's somebody who owns you. The orthodox position concerning Christ is that he is the despot over Christians. He is the Lord over Christians. And anything which diminishes that view is erroneous and is dangerous. What does this say? The master who did what? Bought them. We've been purchased. Next chapter, 2 Peter 3. Peter speaking of waiting for the end of the age, for the new heavens and the new earth. And what's the Christian to do in the meantime? What are we supposed to do? 2 Peter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. In other words, when Christ returns or when you come to the end of your life, our hope and our joy is to be as Christ-like as possible, to be just like him. We wait for the end of the age. Well, Peter gets off the witness stand and up comes his good friend and ministry partner, one who would outlive all the other apostles, the apostle John. He's the seventh witness that the easy believism camp must answer to because John taught that faith in Christ is costly. First John chapter 2. I, I love John. He's so black and white. He doesn't deal in nuances. Either you're for Christ and you're going to heaven or you're against Christ and you're going to hell. And that's it for John. It's very simple for him. First John 2, chapter, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, in stark terms, 1 John 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Who does not, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. When he says he cannot keep sinning, it doesn't mean that you stop sinning right away upon conversion. It just means that sin is fading. It's dying in you. Turn to Second John. We read that in its entirety last week. John blatantly equates true love for Christ with obedience. Second John, verse 6. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching, abide in the teaching of Christ, that means to obey it, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Across the page, Third John, just read it this morning. John assumes that faith in Christ results in living for Christ. There's no debate here. He uses the common biblical metaphor for conduct of walking. Third John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He writes as if this concept is obvious. Listen to the simplistic language he uses in verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. In your margin, write, duh. It's obvious. Now John, 
gets off the witness stand and another half-brother of Jesus comes up. His given name is Judas, but for obvious reasons, he prefers the nickname Jude. He's the eighth witness the Easy Believism camp must answer to. Jude taught that faith in Christ is costly. In Jude, now the Easy Believism camp, on its last gasp, might send up their attorney to say one last time, you can come to Jesus as Savior. He doesn't have to be your Lord. The grace of God means that even if you keep on in your sinful ways, you can still be considered a Christian. And in the witness stand, I would picture little brother of Jesus, Jude, standing up and saying with clear, absolute authority, in verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They deny our only despot, our only Lord, and you have perverted grace into doing whatever you want. Grace cost you nothing, but it must cost you everything. You don't get to do what you want because you're owned. You read this little letter of Jude, there's a snarkiness to it. There is a how dare you pervert the gospel attitude. Witness after witness after witness. Jesus himself, Luke, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, James, Peter, John, Jude, every one of them speaking or writing the inspired words of God has vehemently said that faith in Christ costs you. It costs you your allegiance to your sin. It costs you your love for your own life. It costs you your very life. Now, if you were the judge in this case, you would have no choice but to declare easy believism guilty of deception and falsehood. But as the gavel is about to come down, one more witness comes forward. The first one. And the first witness will now have the last word as well. Only he doesn't come forward anymore as a humble carpenter walking on the dusty roads of the earth. The risen, glorified Jesus Christ comes forward. The one John saw in Revelation 1, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And our glorified Christ tells the Apostle John, Write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And what does the risen, bright, majestic, glorious, despot and master and Lord Jesus say to the churches? Revelation chapter 2, to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 2, I know your works. Jesus is concerned with what they do to the church at Smyrna. Chapter 2, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. They're about to suffer for their faith. To the church at Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 17, the one who conquers will be saved in the end. He perseveres in his faith. Chapter 2, verse 19, to the church at Thyatira, 
I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Verse 25, he says, hold fast what you have until I come. To the church at Sardis, chapter 3, verse 2, I have not found your works complete. Meaning, from verse 1, you seem alive, but you're dead. And what's the answer? Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. To the church of Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 8, I know your works. You have kept my word. You have not denied my name. And yet he tells them in chapter 3, verse 11, hold fast what you have. To the church of Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 15, I know your works. And he says, basically, they prove nothing to me. They're worthless. You're, you're, you're lukewarm. And so chapter 3, verse 19, he says, be zealous and repent. So eight witnesses, plus the first witness testifying again, all adamantly against the easy believism, free grace idea, all adamantly testifying that faith in Christ produces a new life. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but we just went through all 27 books of the New Testament, 300-some pages in my Bible. Easy believism, as Jude said, is a perversion of the grace of our God into sensuality, which denies our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The most well-known evangelist in the past century, easily, maybe two centuries, is undoubtedly Billy Graham. He's preached the gospel to hundreds of millions around the world, probably more than any man in history. There's no doubt as to Billy Graham's love for the Lord and a life which demonstrated his faith. But his ministry was kind of beset with problems, ones that we would have difficulty with. The, the famous altar calls at his crusades, which could feel much more like an emotional pressure than a true move of the Spirit of God. His efforts to embrace everyone led him down some very concerning ecumenical paths at times. And he never claimed to be a theologian and really shied away from theological discussions, which he, I think, could have had great impact in. But he finished well. Near the very end of his life, he had one passion, he had one burden, and it was to write one more book. A book to clear the muddied waters of the gospel. Quote, As I approached my 95th birthday, I was burdened to write a book that addresses the epidemic of easy believism. And so a 95-year-old Billy Graham wrote, The Reason for My Hope, Salvation. And he published it just a couple years before his death. He wrote in this book, quote, It should not be surprising if people believe easily in a God who makes no demands, but this is not the God of the Bible. Satan has cleverly misled people by whispering that they can believe in Jesus Christ without being changed, but this is the devil's lie. He goes on to say, I am afraid that many Christians in their zeal to share their faith in Christ have made the gospel message too simple. Just to say, believe in Christ, can produce false assurance of the hope of heaven. Jesus often spoke about the gift of eternal life. To make it clear, he said, count the cost. Have you counted the cost? Have you counted the cost? Faith in Christ will cost you everything. It means turning away from everything that you hold dear that you might worship. It means being different. It means 
taking all that you thought was yours and giving it to him. It's all his, your life included. It will cost you. But could I say this? The payout is eternal. Right after saying that the true Christian suffers with Christ, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Yes, your faith will cost you everything, but what do you get in return? Everything. 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 Our Father, we thank you because it took the Spirit of God to give each new believer the courage to forsake all. It took the Spirit of God to change our hearts, to be willing to forsake everything that we would worship and to trade it all in, trade all of our idols in, all of our false gods, all of our securities, all of our things that that would make us turn away from you, to give it all to you, and to be willing, Lord, to come to you with nothing, offering nothing but our blackened hearts, our sin nature, and our deep need for forgiveness. And so, Lord, we give you praise and honor because the cost is worth it. And while you have said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, compared to eternity, we understand that now. We understand that, yes, there is a burden, and that is that we give up all for you, that we have been crucified with Christ, and we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And the life that we live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, I pray for one who may be here today, who is counting the cost. Is it worth it to give up my own gods, to give up my security, to give up what I believe is mine? And I pray, Lord, that you would convince them that the cost is so worth it, that salvation is freely given. We can earn nothing from you. But once freely given, we are expected to be your followers. And what a joy and what a delight, what a privilege that we are counted as those who are in the family of God. And we give you thanks and praise, all of this made possible by the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.